Blessed is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in the seat of the scornful. He shall be like a tree planted by the waterside. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The opening verses of the Psalter open in an astonishing way, which I was first alerted to by reading Robert Alter's translation of the Psalms. They take us from walking. Blessed is the one who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, to standing, nor stood in the way of sinners, to sitting, nor sat in the seat of the scornful, to joy and contemplation. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he will meditate day and night. This movement of the psalmist's images from walking to standing to sitting to meditating seems to slow us down as listeners. Indeed, it's almost as if the unfolding imagery grounds us, even plants us in the word. So it feels right when we arrive at the metaphor in the very next verse. He shall be like a tree planted by the waterside. The progression of images has steadied us, readied us for the claim that like a fruit tree by the waters, we should be rooted in the word of God. The verses have invited us to enact their exhortation to us. They invite us to do what they say we should do. This morning, I want to focus not only on what our readings say, but also on what they do with a special focus on Jesus's great sermon on the plain. In this season after Epiphany, during which we celebrate the revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, I want to consider not only what the good news is, but also how that good news is revealed to us. How does Jesus's sermon move us? And what does this tell us about the heart of God? But before we turn to Jesus's sermon, I should note that considering not just what scripture says, but how it works on us is nothing new. St. Augustine, writing about the obscure, the hard passages of scripture in his groundbreaking work, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian teaching, describes scripture's moments of obscurity as useful and healthful. Why would the difficult passages of scripture be healthful? What does such obscurity do for us? Its purpose, Augustine says, is for exercising and sharpening the minds of readers and stimulating the desire to learn. It also hides the truth, and these are quotes from Augustine, it hides the truth in such a way that the minds of the impious are either converted to piety or excluded from the mysteries of faith. Augustine knew that scripture's form matters. Its form forms us. And it was a lesson he had learned from experience before his conversion when he read scripture alongside the eloquent writings of the Roman rhetorician Cicero, Augustine found scripture's style to be unworthy. But after his conversion, he's able to write, what I see in them today is something not accessible to the scrutiny of the proud, nor exposed to the gaze of the immature. If you're proud, or immature, the form of scripture is such that you're not going to understand. Rather, he continues, scripture is, quote, something lowly as one enters, but lofty as one advances further. 
when I was growing up in rural Indiana, my neighbor owned a small woods. It was like postage stamp small, right in the middle of a cornfield that was close to our house. And for us, it was a little wooded playground in the midst of this sea of corn. And as kids, we would make, th make our way through the cornfield, the stalks towering over our heads. And when you're, when you're 10, you're this big, and a corn, a corn stalk is eight feet tall, it seems, seems mammoth. We'd make our way to a spot where we could enter this wood, woods. And the entrance we used required us to pass under branches and then crouch through a small opening in a fence. But then after you entered and stood up, the canopy opened around you. The woods opened up, and the tree, trees seemed to spread out and reached up 30 or 40 feet. It always seemed larger on the inside. Scripture is, for Augustine, a bit like that. Lowly as one enters, but lofty as one advances further. Augustine cared about how Scripture works. So with that in mind, let's turn to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. This is Luke 6, starting at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. As with, as with Psalm 1, there's movement in this passage, although this time it's Jesus that is slowing to a stop. His move, movement is a somewhat curious detail. In the verses preceding this one, Luke tells us that Jesus was on the mountainside praying. Now he comes down and stands on a level place to deliver his sermon. It's curious because the content of this sermon is similar to the message we find in Matthew 5. But Matthew, of course, has Jesus going up the mountain, not down, to del deliver the message, which, of course, is why we call them the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Some commentators suspect that these two accounts are actually adapted from the same sermon, while others maintain that they are records from different occasions. But either way, I think it's a blessing to us that we've been given both. Just think for a minute about what it means to have both Luke 6 and Matthew 5 in our Bibles. The Beatitudes flourish on both the mountains and the plains, a kind of declaration to us that the justice of God covers the whole earth. The Sermon on the Plain begins with the blessings and the woes. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you on account of me. But woe to the rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. What does this juxtaposition of the blessings and woes do? For one thing, as I've just suggested, it presents us with a vision of justice, of the right ordering of things. And it's a vision of justice that drinks deeply from the Hebrew scriptures. Over and over again, the Old Testament suggests that to do justly means to care for the vulnerable people in one's midst. It's one of the great themes of scripture, coursing like a river through the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets until it overflows in beauty in the words of Mary's song, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of the servant, scattered the proud, brought down the mighty, exalted those in humble estate. He's filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. These are deep waters to draw on. And in his sermon, Jesus drinks from them like a tree planted by the waterside. He reveals himself to be the blessed man of Psalm 1. And if you need an image to remember this point by, consider the mural on the wall behind you. 
Jesus Christ stands in front of the tree, but the suggestion is very much that he's like the tree. Just look at those wounds on the tree. In what other ways does the opening of Jesus' sermon work? By distinguishing the blessed from those deserving of woe, the sermon itself immediately branches, activating two different audiences. Jesus splits those listening into two groups, and how one hears the rest of the sermon probably depends on the branch where you find yourself sitting at the beginning. If you're among the rich, the well-fed, the well-spoken of, it's difficult for me not to find myself in this group. The sermon issues a hard word and a warning. You've received your consolation. Drawing on the prophetic tradition, these words convict us, reminding us that too often our views about what we deserve are at odds with the justice of the kingdom of God. But if you're among the poor, hungry, sorrowful, or slandered on account of Christ, and there are, I think, plenty of listeners who hear these words and rightfully see themselves in this group, the sermon comes across differently. Many of the people making up the sermon's first audience, those seated on the plane, would have seen themselves in this group. Luke tells us that Jesus' original audience was made up of many in need of healing. To them, to all the oppressed and marginalized who put their trust in the Lord, the Beatitudes function as a promise. Your current situation is but a passing thing. Jesus says to all who put their trust in him, I see you as you will be. Take heart. Dividing up one's audience in this manner does, of course, come with a rhetorical risk. One's listeners may be tempted to start looking around the plane and making comparisons, taking it upon themselves to make judgments about who's blessed and who is not. John's pretty blessed, but oh, woe to Mary. We have a tendency as humans to want to take on God's role as judge. But Jesus will have none of that. The second section of the sermon anticipates and addresses this tendency, discouraging us from any sort of finger pointing. It's a forceful section due in part to a long list of commands, imperatives. Listen to all of the commands that come in the second part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. We didn't read this this morning. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Be merciful. Judge not, lest you be judged. Forgive that you may be forgiven. Give, and it will be given. Remove the beam of wood from your own eye before worrying about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. There's much to say about how this middle section of the sermon works, but for our purposes this morning, let me just leave it at this. Jesus, Jesus used commands, imperatives, parallelism, and even hyperbole, exaggeration, to drive home the point that while we must do justly, we do not sit in the judgment seat. It's not my place to issue blessings and woes about you. Rather, I need to tend to the giant log in my own eye. And it's at this point in the sermon that I think Jesus does something that's absolutely remarkable. He introduces, or I should say, he reintroduces the metaphor of the fruit tree. Luke 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
What does the metaphor of the fruit tree do at this point in the Sermon on the Plain? For one thing, it associates everything that's been said with a powerful image, and in doing so, helps to embed the message in our memories. As ancient orators knew, and contemporary world memory champions know, we're much more likely to remember ideas when they've been linked to vivid images. And Jesus gives us the gift of such an image here. What's more, the image is not a random one. The sermon's first audience would have encountered fruit trees, and especially fig trees, regularly. To the extent that Jesus' association between his sermon and the fruit tree stuck in their mind, his followers might have seen the message sprouting up everywhere they looked. Aids to remembering the sermon would have dotted the landscape, including, perhaps, on the very plain on which they were sitting. There are trees all around us right now. If you look out the windows, all you can see is branches. But the image of the fruit tree wasn't just a familiar feature of the physical landscape. As our Old Testament readings for today reveal, fruit tree imagery had sprouted up throughout the Hebrew scriptures as well. I've already noted that Jesus' sermon presents us with a vision of justice that drinks deeply from the Old Testament. But the image of the fruit tree, combined with the blessings and woes earlier in the sermon, seems to point us back unmistakably to the opening verses of the Psalter. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth its fruit in due season. Dietrich Bonhoeffer described the Psalter as the prayer book of Jesus Christ. And we get support for that claim here. It's almost as if Jesus' entire sermon is just an amplification of Psalm 1. And for that matter, Jeremiah 17, our other reading for today. Both passages distinguish the blessed from those who are not. And both present us with the image of a fruit tree. Thus, in using the image in his sermon, Jesus not only gives us a memory aid for the future, Look at that tree. Oh, I can remember Jesus' sermon. He also invites us to remember what has come before. He draws us back into the scriptures, implicitly reminding us that the source of our life is to be found in the word of God. And this implicit point of Jesus' sermon is the explicit point of both Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. Psalm 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Jeremiah 17, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. It's powerful, but not totally surprising then, when we arrive at some of the last lines of Jesus' sermon. Jesus asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? His message there resonates with the lessons of the psalmist and the prophet. We are to hear and obey the Lord, rooting our lives in the word of life. The layers of meaning here are powerful, as I've said, and I think they reinforce one another and help us remember. All that said, I have a feeling that one of the most forceful points of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain might have actually been revealed later in his ministry. This is just speculation on my part, but after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he and his disciples encounter a fruitless fig tree. As you know, he curses the tree and the tree withers. The central metaphor used in Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, and Luke 6 now actually manifests itself 
right before the disciples' eyes. And while Jesus uses the withered fig tree as an occasion to speak about prayer, I have to wonder if the disciples were momentarily transported back to the Sermon on the Plain and perhaps heard the words of the prophet Jeremiah ringing in their ears, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. I, the Lord, search the heart and mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Watching Jesus make the fig fig tree wither might have been the ultimate sermon illustration. Honestly, I find it somewhat terrifying. And it makes me wonder, am I like the, the fruitless fig tree, a shrub in the desert, chaff in the wind? And the answer to all these questions is, I think, yes. Apart from Christ, I am. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. We haven't reached the Sermon on the Plains' final exclamation point yet, which, I would argue, also comes later and is also about a tree and its fruit. Christ was crucified upon a tree, but he has been raised again, as Paul tells us in our epistle reading for today. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Apart from Christ, we're all fruitless, but in the resurrected Christ, like branches in a vine, we share in his good fruit and are given the power to bear good fruit. Once again, I can't do any better than direct you to the tree on the wall behind you. I'm sure all other All Souls preachers have made this point before, but it bears repeating. Our, our mural presents us with the image of a fruit tree. You won't see any figs in those branches, but the fruit is there, front and center. It's Jesus Christ, the first fruits of those raised from the dead. I recently read Richard Power's absolutely fantastic book, The Overstory, which is all about a group of people whose lives are intertwined with the lives of trees. And there's so much I could say about this book. It's fantastic. You should go buy a copy right now. Uh, But I mentioned Power's book here because we Christians have our own version of the overstory. Scattered across the pages of scripture, trees are intertwined with the great story of our salvation. Our former catechist at All Souls, Alan Jacobs, and Brad Cathy put together a project called The Gospel of the Trees. Uh, You can go check it out online. But just listen to how our story can be told just with trees. When we ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we were exiled from the garden, barred from the tree of life. We were called to be oaks of righteousness, but more often we were fruitless trees and shrubs in the desert. So God sent forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who called disciples to himself. I saw you while you were standing under the fig tree. He healed people from blindness. I see people walking around as trees and invited them to share in his life. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And yet we hung him on a tree, and cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But that was not the end. By becoming a curse, he redeemed the world from the curse of the law. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And now, the wild olive shoots have been grafted in, sharing in his nourishing life. For in him we are promised nothing less than a return to the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. The scriptures are a kind of spiritual arboretum, and its many trees patiently stand at the ready to remind us again of the good news of Jesus Christ. What does all of this tell us about the heart of God? I think the fact that God's revelation 
to us takes these multiple forms, these layers, as an indication of his deep love for us. When I was small, about the time that I was running around in the cornfields, I was one day sitting uh, with my grandpa Beitler, and I, I seem to recall that it was a, a su summer day and a windy summer day. Um, and he was looking up at the trees, moving in the wind. And he said quietly, almost to himself, I love trees. <laughs> and I thought that was strange at the time, uh, but not now. I love trees. A lot of us love trees. And God speaks to us through, through our loves. Through its images and instruction, scripture moves us in ways that draw us in, walking, standing, sitting, meditating. It convicts us and offers us promises. Blessed are you, woe to you. It commands us to do justly without standing in judgment. Do good to those who hate you and judge not. And it invites us to find new life in Christ. I am the vine and you are the branches. May you too be a fruit tree, ever growing beside the waters of scripture. And in the last day, may you be raised with Christ, the first fruits of new and unending life. Amen. <laughs>